You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Don't be afraid. Come with me. on the hill, filled with thrills and chills. Turn off the lights and light a candle. Pull up a seat if you will. You are listening to Lights Out Radio. According to studies and research, there are approximately 25 to 50 active serial killers operating in the United States today. The average person unknowingly walks by about 15 murderers in their lifetime. You are now tuned in to Serial Killer Saturday. And welcome back everybody for another edition of Lights Out Radio. I'm Justin, your host. And this is a Serial Killer Saturday edition. I hope everybody had a wonderful week. Now let's just keep it moving and jump right into this. Yeah. Now for a quick update that kind of pulled at my heartstrings a little bit. David Gordon Green and John Carpenter released a press release uh, this past Wednesday on July 8th saying that they were delaying the new Halloween Kills movie. It's the second chapter of the Blumhouse Halloween trilogy. They delayed it, so it's not coming out until October of next year now. Now, that is sad. My favorite horror villain, for sure. My favorite fictional serial killer. He just moved like an assassin. Like, there was no bullshit about him. In and out, done. He just stalked the prey, took care of the prey, and that's it. I always thought the storylines were good. All the different mask changes throughout the uh, movies has always been cool to me. I like that little artistic twitch to every movie. So yeah, I just wanted kind of to give everybody an update on that. Now in the press release, it also states that on top of a traditional release, Universal has agreed to an IMAX presentation of the film in October of next year when they do release it. So Halloween fans, Michael Myers fans, we got to hold out for another year, man. You guys stay strong. And with that being said, we're going to jump into the show. So we're going to start out with uh, a guy that actually just made the news again recently, which is why we're going to do this quick little expose on him, if you will. Now, the man I'm talking about is named Mark David Latunsky. He's a 51-year-old Michigan man born March 28, 1969. He lived on Tyrell Road in Shiawassee County's Bennington Township in Michigan. And keep in mind that this is an ongoing case, so the details and everything is still kind of hush-hush. But I'm going to give you what I got and what I could find. On October 10th, 2019, a man in his 40s was visiting Michigan from New York. He was in town to help a friend out with some kind of court case or something. And ran into Latunsky at the bus station. Now there's not much that I could find on this guy, but I did happen to find the actual 911 call. And he said that he's in town, he's in Detroit from New York uh, for some court advocacy thing. He's supposed to meet somebody there. He said he bumped into Mark there. He said that he's by, 
Mark was cute. They started talking, went out to the car, started talking, went to the store, had some sodas, and then woke up chained in some random basement. So he uses a knife that he found and cuts the leather strap that's attaching his chain to his leg. So after that, he escapes out of the house. He calls 911 from his cell phone. He says he's lost. He's ran around. He doesn't know where he's at, doesn't know where he's going. And he doesn't know if the guy's following him or chasing him down or anything. So he's still got the butcher knife that he used to cut the leather strap on him. And he said once the cops show up, he'll be glad to put it down, but he's not putting it down until then. And that's all I could really find on it. The cops show up. Everything's cool. But he refused to file a police report or make any criminal allegations. First Lieutenant David Kaiser with the Michigan State Police says, I don't know if it was because he was embarrassed, I don't know. But I do know troopers actually gave him a ride to a gas station away from the residence. We are looking to talk to him and gather even more evidence. First Lieutenant Kaiser also states that he believes a New York man actually returned to Latunsky's house and stayed for two or three days after the October incident. Kaiser also went on to say that there are different sexual acts that other people like. Not to judge, it's different and it's not for everybody. But people that are into bondage and the SNM, that is a different type of lifestyle and it may seem strange to other people, but to those people it's not. And let's fast forward a month later to November 25th, 2019. At about 5 p.m. a 911 call was placed by a 29-year-old wearing nothing but a leather kilt. He told the dispatcher that he was not from the area and that he was, quote, trying to get away from some creepy guy that had him tied up in a basement and that the creepy guy was chasing him, end quote. And since he wasn't from the area and didn't know where he was, the dispatcher at 911 had him run up to the closest house that he could find, which ended up being Latunsky's neighbor, who I'm sure was kind of freaked out at the fact that some guy's randomly banging on his door asking for help while he's wearing nothing but a leather kilt. But regardless, after a while, he ends up giving him the address and the cops show up. And according to police, upon arrival, what they found was that Latunsky was only chasing him because he left the house with a $300 kilt that he wanted back. And the 29-year-old told police that he had been chained in Latunsky's basement. First Lieutenant Kaiser states that he said he became frightened or spooked and that's why he ran from the house. Everything that happened in the house was consensual. Nobody wanted to file a complaint or file a police report. No criminal act was discovered, and there was nothing we could do as law enforcement. The younger man put on clothes, and the kilt was returned back to Latunsky. The 29-year-old advised he did not want a report to go to the prosecutor's office, and he was not looking for any type of criminal charges. And that was the end of that whole situation. And that leads us to one month later on Christmas Eve 2019, where 25-year-old Kevin Bacon told his roommate that he was going to hook up with a guy he met on Grindr. Now, if you don't know what Grindr is, it's a hookup site for the LGBTQ community or app, hookup app, whatever you want to call it. And the roommate also told police that Bacon had texted her to let her know that he was having fun and would be coming home late. But he never did show up. So the next day, Christmas Day, Kevin's dad calls the police because his son didn't show up to the family Christmas gathering. And Kevin's car was found at a local dollar store, which contained his phone and wallet. Police found messages on the phone between Bacon and Latunsky, which led to them at Latunsky's home on December 28th doing a welfare check. And the police noted that Latunsky did let them check the house willingly. And when they were checking the basement, they found a hidden room. 
Now there in that hidden room in the basement, Bacon was found hanging deceased and naked from the ceiling. Latunsky admitted to killing Bacon, explaining that he stabbed Bacon in the back of the neck and slit his throat before hanging his corpse upside down by its ankles with a rope. Latunsky also admitted to cutting off Bacon's testicles and eating them. Investigators believe he was killed either on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day. So Latunsky was arraigned by video on December 30th on one count of open murder, which means it's not yet determined if he'll be charged with first or second degree murder, and one count of mutilation of a dead body. The court ordered a competency exam on January 8th, and a physician found Latunsky incompetent to stand trial on February 27th. So now there's a 15-month window to see if Latunsky can be found competent to stand trial. And his public defender has also issued a plea of insanity. And on Monday, June 29th, Mark David Latunsky was transferred to the State Center for Forensic Psychiatry for the 15-month window of evaluation and treatment. So I guess we'll just see where it goes from here and see what happens. But I will say that this case is probably a word to the wise about people using dating and hookup apps and sites. I mean, you just never know whose web you're going to wander onto. And with those updates and up to speeds, we're going to cut to a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to come back to today's topic, Harold Shipman, a.k.a. Dr. Death. Stay tuned. Yeah. Saturday edition of Lights Out Radio. I'm Justin, your host. We're going to be talking about Harold Frederick Shipman, a.k.a. Dr. Death, a.k.a. the Angel of Death, a.k.a. the Good Doctor. He was born January 14, 1946, on the Bestwood Council Estate in Nottingham, uh, Nottinghamshire, England. He was an accomplished rugby player in youth leagues, and he excelled as a distance runner. And in his final year at school, he served as the vice captain of the athletics team. Now, it's reported that Shipman was particularly close to his mom, who died of lung cancer when he was 17. Her death came in a manner similar to what later became Shipman's own kind of M.O. In the later stages of her disease, she had morphine administered at her home by a doctor. Shipman witnessed his mother's pain subside, despite her terminal condition, until her death on June 21st, 1963. On November 5th, 1966, Shipman married Primrose May Oxtoby, and they had four kids together. Harold graduated from the Leeds School of Medicine in 1970, and in 1974 took his first position as a general practitioner, only for a year later to be caught forging prescriptions for Demerol for his own use. He was fined 600 pounds and ordered to attend a drug rehabilitation clinic in York. And then in 1993, he established his own practice on 21 Market Street. So the guy seems to be doing pretty well for himself. But it all comes crashing down March 1998, when Linda Reynolds of the Brook Surgery in Hyde, prompted by Deborah Massey from Frank Massey and Sons Funeral Parlor, expressed concerns to John Pollard, the coroner for the South Manchester District, about the high death rate among Shipman's patients. In particular, she was concerned about the large number of cremation forms for elderly women that he had needed countersigned. The matter was brought to the attention of the police, who were unable to find any sufficient evidence to bring charges. So between April 17, 1998, when the police abandoned the investigation, 
and September 7, 1998, when Shipman was eventually arrested, he had killed three more people, of which the last victim being Kathleen Grundy, who was found dead at her home on June 24, 1998. Now, Shipman was the last person to see her alive, and he later signed her death certificate recording old age as the cause of death. Now, I think it all came to a head when solicitor Brian Burgess informed Angela Woodruff, who's a Grundy's daughter, she's a lawyer, he informed her that a will had been made apparently by her mother, but she had doubts of its authenticity, and for good reason, I think. I mean, the will excluded Woodruff and her children, but left 386,000 pounds to Shipman. So Kathleen's daughter Angela went to the police who began an investigation. Kathleen's body was exhumed and when examined was found to contain traces of heroin, often used for pain control in terminal cancer patients. Shipman claimed that she was an addict and showed them comments he had written in his medical journal. However, examination of his computer showed that they were written after her death. So Shipman was arrested on September 7, 1998 and was found to own a brother typewriter, the kind used to make the forged will. As police investigated, they uncovered evidence of further murders. Now, During their interviews with him, a highly confident Shipman denied all charges. Detective Chief Inspector Mike Williams said he was an arrogant type of individual to deal with, and I don't say that lightly. I've listened to the interviews, and he certainly wanted to control and dominate the interview and the officers, at times belittling them. He was treating this as some sort of game, a competition, pitting what he considered to be his superior intellect to those of the officers who were interviewing him. On October 5th, 1999, at Preston Crown Court, he was officially charged with the murders of 15 women by lethal injection during the period of 1995 through 1998. Then on January 31st, 2000, after six days of deliberation, the jury found Harold Shipman guilty of 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery. He was sentenced to life imprisonment on all 15 counts of murder and a concurrent sentence of four years for forging Kathleen Grundy's will. While it's reported that officials could have brought many additional charges, they concluded that a fair hearing would be impossible in view of the enormous publicity surrounding the original trial. Furthermore, the 15 life sentences already handed down rendered further litigation unnecessary. And I think it's kind of important to note that Harold consistently denied his guilt, disputing the scientific evidence against him, and that his wife was kind of a ride or die. She maintained her husband's innocence even after his conviction. And I think it also should be noted that Harold is the only doctor in the history of British medicine to be found guilty of murdering his patients. In July of 2002, Judge Janet Smith and senior West Yorkshire detective Chris Gregg submitted what would be called the Shipman Inquiry, and it concluded that he had killed at least 215 of his patients between 1975 and 1998 but stated in total 459 people died while under his care between 1971 and 1998, but it is uncertain how many of those were murder victims, as he was often the only doctor to certify a death. Smith's estimate of Shipman's total victim count over that 27-year period was 250. And then on the eve of his 58th birthday at 6.20 a.m. on January 13, 2004, Harold hung himself from the window bars of his cell with bedsheets. He was pronounced dead at 8.10 a.m. 
Some of the victims' families said that they felt cheated, as Shipman's suicide meant that they would never have the satisfaction of his confession nor answers as to why he committed his crimes. The South Manchester coroner, John Pollard, who knew and worked with Shipman, has his own theory about the doctor's motives. The only valid possible explanation for it is that he simply enjoyed viewing the process of dying and enjoyed the feeling of control over life and death. Literally, over life and death. In 2005, it came to light that Harold may have been stealing jewelry from his victims. In 1998, police seized over 10,000 pounds worth of jewelry they found in his garage. And on that same year, July 30th, 2005, a memorial garden to Shipman's victims called the Garden of Tranquility opened in Hyde Park. And there you have it, guys. That is the story of Harold Frederick Shipman, a.k.a. Dr. Death, a.k.a. The Good Doctor, a.k.a. The Angel of Death. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thank you for stopping by and stay tuned for next week's episode. I'm Justin, your host, and this is Lights Out Radio. Stay spooky, my friends.